Western Europe, Chapter 15, of Memoirs of a Revolutionist, Volume 2, by Peter Kropotkin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eileen. Demands for our release were continually raised, both in the press and in the Chamber of Deputies, the more so as about the same time that we were condemned, Louis Michel was condemned too, for robbery. Louise Michel, who always gives literally her last shawl or cloak to the woman who is in need of it, and who never could be compelled, during her imprisonment, to have better food, because she always gave her fellow prisoners what was sent to her, was condemned, together with another comrade, Puget, to nine years' imprisonment for highway robbery. That sounded too bad even for the middle-class opportunists. She marched one day at the head of a procession of the unemployed, and, entering a baker's shop, took a few loaves from it and distributed them to the hungry column. This was her robbery. The release of the anarchists thus became a war cry against the government, and in the autumn of 1885 all my comrades save three were set at liberty by a decree of President Crevy. Then the outcry on behalf of Louis Michel and myself became still louder. However, Alexander III objected to it, and one day the Prime Minister, M. Fresinet, answering an interpolation in the chamber, said that diplomatic difficulties stood in the way of Kropotkin's release. Strange words in the mouth of the Prime Minister of an independent country, but still stranger words have been heard since, in connection with that ill-omened alliance of France with Imperial Russia. At last, in the middle of January 1886, both Louis Michel and Puget, as well as the four of us who were still at Clairvaux, were set free. We went to Paris and stayed there for a few weeks with our friend, Elie Reclis. A writer of great power in anthropology, who is often mistaken outside France for his younger brother, the geographer, Elysée. A close friendship has united the two brothers from early youth. When the time came for them to enter a university, they went from a small country place in the valley of the Gironde to Strasbourg, making the journey on foot, accompanied as true wandering students by their dog, and when they stayed at some village it was the dog which got his bowl of soup while the two brothers' supper very often consisted of bread only, with a few apples. From Strasbourg the younger brother went to Berlin, where too he was attracted by the lectures of the great Ritter. Later on, in the forties, they were both at Paris. Elie Reclus became a convinced Fourierist, and both saw in the Republic of 1848 the coming of a new era of social evolution. Consequently, after Napoleon III's coup d'état, they both had to leave France and emigrated to England. When the amnesty was voted, and they returned to Paris, Elie edited there a Fourierist cooperative paper which was widely spread among the workers. It is not generally known, but may be interesting to note, that Napoleon III, who played the part of a Caesar, interested, as behoves a Caesar, in the conditions of the working classes, used to send one of his aide-de-camps to the printing office of the paper, each time it was printed, to take to the Tuileries the first sheet issued from the press. He was, later on, even ready to patronize the International Working Men's Association, 
on the condition that it should put in one of its reports a few words of confidence in the great socialist plans of the caesar and he ordered its prosecution when the internationalists refused point-blank to do anything of the sort when the commune was proclaimed both brothers heartily joined it and elie accepted the post of keeper of the national library and the louvre museum under veillon to his foresight and to his hard work that we owe the preservation of the invaluable treasures of human knowledge and art accumulated in these two institutions otherwise they would have perished during the bombardment of paris by the armies of Villiers and the subsequent conflagration a passionate lover of greek art and profoundly acquainted with it he had had all the most precious statues and vases of the louvre packed and stored in the caves while the greatest precautions were taken to protect the building of the national library from the conflagration which raged around it his wife a courageous worthy companion of the philosopher followed in the streets by her two little boys organized in the meantime in her own quarter of the town the feeding of the population which had been reduced to sheer destitution by a second siege during the final few weeks of its existence the commune at last realized that a supply of food to the population which was deprived of the means of earning it for itself ought to have been the commune's first duty and volunteers organized the relief it was by mere accident that elie reclus who had kept to his post till the last moment escaped being shot by the versailles troops and a sentence of deportation having been pronounced upon him for having dared to accept so necessary a service under the commune he went with his family into exile now on his return to paris he had resumed the work of his life ethnology what this work is may be judged from a few very few chapters of it published in book form under the title of primitive folk and the australians as well as from the history of the origin of religions which he now lectures upon at the Ecole des Autitudes at brussels a foundation of his brother in the whole of the ethnological literature there are not many works imbued to the same extent with a thorough and sympathetic understanding of the true nature of primitive man as to his origin of religions which is being published in the review société nouvelle and its continuation humanité nouvelle it is i venture to say the best work on the subject that has been published undoubtedly superior to herbert spencer's attempt in the same direction because herbert spencer with all his immense intellect does not possess that understanding of the artless and simple nature of the primitive man which elie possesses to a rare perfection and to which he has added an extremely wide knowledge of a rather underrated branch of folk psychology the evolution and transformation of beliefs it is needless to speak of elie Reclus's infinite good nature and modesty or of his superior intelligence and vast knowledge of all subjects relating to humanity it is all comprehended in his style with his unbounded modesty his calm manner and his deep philosophical insight he is the type of the greek philosopher of antiquity in a society less fond of patented tuition and of piecemeal instruction and more appreciative of the development of wide humanitarian conceptions he would be surrounded by flocks of pupils like one of his greek prototypes a very animated socialist and anarchist movement was going on at paris while we stayed there 
Louise Michel lectured every night, and aroused the enthusiasm of her audiences, whether they consisted of working men or were made up of middle-class people. Her already great popularity became still greater and spread even amongst the university students, who might hate advanced ideas but worshipped in her the ideal woman, so much so that a riot, caused by someone speaking disrespectfully of Louise Michel in the presence of students, took place one day in a café. The young people took up her defence and made a fearful uproar, smashing all the tables and glasses in the café. I also lectured once on anarchism, before an audience of several thousand people, and left Paris immediately after that lecture, before the government could obey the injunctions of the reactionary and the pro-Russian press, which insisted upon my being expelled from France. From Paris we went to London, where I found once more my two old friends, Stepniak and Tchaikovsky. The socialist movement was in full swing and life in London was no more the dull vegetating existence that it had been for me four years before. We settled in a small cottage at Harrow. We cared little about the furniture of our cottage, a good part of which I made myself with the aid of Tchaikovsky. He had been in the meantime in the United States, and had learned some carpentering. But we rejoiced immensely at having a small plot of heavy Middlesex clay in our garden, my wife and myself went with much enthusiasm into small culture, the admirable results of which I began to realize after having made acquaintance with the writings of Tobo and some Paris magasiers, gardeners, and after our own experiment in the prison garden at Clairvaux. As for my wife, who had typhoid fever soon after we settled at Harrow, the work in the garden during the period of convalescence was more completely restorative for her than a stay at the very best sanatorium. By the end of the summer a heavy stroke fell upon us. We learned that my brother Alexander was no longer alive. During the years that I had been abroad before my imprisonment in France, we had never corresponded with each other. In the eyes of the Russian government, to love a brother who is persecuted for his political opinions is in itself a sin. To maintain relations with him after he has become a refugee is a crime. A subject of the Tsar must hate all the rebels against the supreme ruler's authority, and Alexander was in the clutches of the Russian police. I persistently refused, therefore, to write to him or to any of my relatives. After the Tsar had written on the petition of our sister Helene, let him remain there, there was no hope of a speedy release for my brother. Two years after that, a committee was nominated to settle terms for those who had been exiled to Siberia without judgment for an undetermined time, and my brother got five years. That made seven with the two years he had already been kept there. Then a new committee was nominated under Loris Melikov, and added another five years. My brother was thus to be liberated in October 1886. That made twelve years of exile, first in a tiny town of East Siberia, and afterwards at Tomsk. That is in the lowlands of West Siberia, where he had not even the dry and healthy climate of the high prairies farther east. When I was imprisoned at Clairvaux, he wrote to me, and we exchanged a few letters. He wrote that as our letters would be read by the Russian police in Siberia, 
and by the French prison authorities in France, we might as well write to each other under this double supervision. He spoke of his family life, of his three children whom he characterized admirably well, and of his work. He earnestly advised me to keep a watchful eye upon the development of science in Italy, where excellent and original researches are made, but remain unknown in the scientific world until they have been remanufactured in Germany, and he gave me his opinions about the probable march of political life in Russia. He did not believe in the possibility with us in a near future of constitutional rule on the pattern of the West European parliaments, but he looked forward, and found it quite sufficient for the moment, to the convocation of a sort of deliberative national assembly, Zemsky Sobor, or Etat Généraux. It would not vote new laws, but would only work out the schemes of laws to which the imperial power and the council of state would give their definitive form and the final sanction. Above all, he wrote to me about his scientific work. He always had a decided leaning towards astronomy, and when we were at St. Petersburg he had published in Russian an excellent summary of all our knowledge of the shooting stars. With his fine critical mind he soon saw the strong or the weak points of different hypotheses, and without sufficient knowledge of mathematics, but endowed with a powerful imagination, he succeeded in grasping the results of the most intricate mathematical researches. Living with his imagination amongst the moving celestial bodies, he realized their complex movements often better than some mathematicians, especially the pure algebraists, realize them, because they often lose sight of the realities of the physical world to see only the formulae and their logical connections. Our St. Petersburg astronomers spoke to me with great appreciation of that work of my brother. Now he undertook to study the structure of the universe, to analyze the data and the hypotheses about the worlds of suns, star clusters, and nebulae in the infinite space, and to disentangle their probable grouping, their life, and the laws of their evolution and decay. The Pulkova astronomer, Gülden, spoke highly of this new work of Alexander, and introduced him by correspondence to Mr. Holden in the United States from whom I had lately the pleasure of hearing, at Washington, an appreciative estimate of my brother's researches. Science is greatly in need, from time to time, of such scientific speculations of a higher standard, made by a scrupulously laborious, critical, and at the same time imaginative mind. But in a small town of Siberia, far away from all the libraries, unable to follow the progress of science, he had only succeeded in embodying in his work the researches which had been made up to the date of his exile. Some capital work had been done since, he knew it, but how could he get access to the necessary books so long as he remained in Siberia? The approach of the term of his liberation did not inspire him with hope, either. He knew that he would not be allowed to stay in any of the university towns of Russia or of Western Europe but that his exile to Siberia would be followed by a second exile, perhaps even worse than the first, to some hamlet of eastern Russia. Despair took possession of him. A despair like Faust's takes hold of me at times, he wrote to me. When the time of his liberation was coming, he sent his wife and children to Russia, 
taking advantage of one of the last steamers before the close of the navigation, and, on a gloomy night, the despair of Faust put an end to his life. A dark cloud hung upon our cottage for many months, until a flash of light pierced it. It came next spring, when a tiny being, a girl who bears my brother's name, came into the world, and at whose helpless cry I overheard in my heart quite new chords vibrating. End of Western Europe, Chapter 15